Welcome to Effortless Swimming, the podcast for swimmers, triathletes, and coaches. Join Australian swim coach Brenton Ford as he reveals the latest techniques and information to improve your swimming. Let's dive right in. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Effortless Swimming podcast. This time I've got Bobby McGee, five-time Olympic run coach, with me here. This is the second time I've had Bobby on because not only does he know so much about running, that it's really interesting to hear his perspective on training and technique uh, and all the different elements that go into running, but a lot of that transfers to swimming. And this episode, I want to talk about some of the things that Bobby sees when he gets swimmers who have people who have started out as swimmers and they've gone to running, some of the common traits or common flaws that he sees in swimmers going into running and how, as a swimmer going into running, how you can change them and start to look like a runner and improve your times and improve your results. So, Bobby, thanks again for joining me on another episode of the podcast. Oh, Brenton, it's great to be I had so much fun last time. I sincerely hope there's something else I can add to to the athletes out there. It, it was a great time. Thanks. Well, uh, with looking at your latest uh, course that you've, you've just released, which is your run transformation course, that's basically a, a huge brain download that, that you've done of your experience over the last um, however many years it's been that you've been coaching. And I'm sure that there's no shortage of uh, information that you can that you can uh, help share with us because um, you've got such a huge uh, history in the sport of running that it's always good to talk with someone like yourself because I think we've got uh, very um, very similar philosophies when it comes to helping athletes improve in their sport. Absolutely, you know it, it's so funny. I have, you know, I've been as you said, I've been coaching a long time. This is my 31st year of coaching. And um, in that amount of time, you realize that there's that there's certain approaches to endurance sports that are uh, somebody comes up with a system and a whole new set of words and a whole new approach. And then they refine that and they refine that. And, and, it, and it helps a large amount of people, but it's still a system. And then you, you, you have to go into one of two directions. One is you can accept that it's never going to be the final product because you're always going to be learning and you're always going to be finding out different ways to help people get better. Or you get into the marketing side of it and you just push and push and push and you, you know, you sell this product that's, that, you know, over the, over time as we learn more becomes less and less effective. And I've never been able to do that, that latter approach, you know, so. You know, three months after I completed my DVD, I said, oh, no, I wish I had another crack at it. But then I realized, you know, if I had another crack at it, three months afterwards, I'd want to do it again. So the, the beauty of, of Run Transformation was that um, I had unlimited time. I didn't have like 90 minutes for a DVD or 60,000 words for a book. And so I ended up what was supposed to be three hours of work. I ended up doing about 10 hours of work. And I spoke a lot about how people should approach finding out what works for them as opposed to being dogmatic and telling them exactly what to do. And so it was kind of fun, especially the run training part of it, where I spoke to people just like an elite has taken five or six years to discover what works for them. All I was offering was a pathway to find out given your life circumstances, how many times can you run a week? What kind of body do you have? What kind of area do you live in? How would you set about designing for yourself a, an ideal training plan? So I, I had a lot of fun with it. I drove, I drove all the people that were helping me insane because it took me so long. But in the end, I, I was quite happy with how it turned out. Yeah, that's awesome. And I know you started creating it quite a while ago. And, um, I don't know whether you're a perfectionist or not, but just wanting to make sure that you include everything that you know is going to help that person improve their running. It's, um, it can be hard to, to know when to sort of stop and say, okay, I'm done. Uh, this is going to get, get that person results. I've just got to put it out there in front of people now. So, um, yeah, it can be hard to know when to stop. And that's, it's kind of similar with my Swimprove online swim coaching communities. It's, it's something that, you know, the latest information that I get, you know, I might learn something new that week. I'll release it and tell people what it is so that they can use it. And, how many hours of content have you got in your run transformation course? It's about 10 hours, yeah. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's not just the 90-minute DVD that, that uh, people can access. So, that's, uh, yeah, that's fantastic. Um, and I think it's broken up into little, 
you know, little 12 to 15 minute uh, sections so that people don't, you know, lose their string. And it's got a lot of good little place markers where, where things are very well um, supported by a PowerPoint where people can get into something for just 15 minutes and then they can go back tomorrow and carry on from that point on. Yeah, that's good. And the way I quite like to learn is to think about where I need to improve and then get the information that I need to go and improve it and then go and use it. So rather than going from start to finish, you can sort of pick and choose where you think you might need to to get better. Yeah, I just had uh, a few people won prizes in the in the first rendition of the course when I did the beta beta test and and those people that got the most people to sign up uh, you know to my website they got prizes and, and the first prize was to spend a day with me and I've just you know about two weekends ago I had the last person who won that first prize um, and she uh, came along and she said she tried to, instead of saying, like, I want to go out for my regular 35-minute run and, you know, I'm trying to progress that, she said, okay, I'm not going to worry about my 35 minutes. I'm just going to go every day and just work on the three or four things that he said were the key things I needed to work on. And by the end of the first week, she said she was just completely hitting the ground differently. She, her legs were feeling much better afterwards. She was feeling lighter. She'd taken, you know, about... I think eight or nine seconds a K off her running pace just by, by focusing on those things. So those things are extremely gratifying when people take them to heart and, and apply them, you know, in tiny little bits and just what's specific to them. Absolutely. I th- and I think with running and swimming and a lot of these individual sports, even if you do have a coach, it still comes down to becoming a coach yourself, becoming a coach of your own technique and your own fitness and your own schedule because I think it comes down to education and getting the information from someone and then being able to apply it to your own um, stroke or your own running technique. Absolutely. You know, I think one of the advantages of being, you know, an older coach now that I've been doing it for so long is that, A, I'm not attached to dogma and I'm not attached to doing something the same way. But also on top of that, I'm, I'm not attached to ego either. And I think a lot of individuals who come from a team sport background or, you know, are past that, you know, 25 to 35 or even 25 to, to 40 year old window where they just think if I just push hard enough, if I'm just dedicated enough, if I'm dis- just disciplined enough, I'll make it. But it's not really the case is they have to find out what's custom fit for them. And uh, to me, that, that's, that's the trick of coaching the way that we coach is, is that we're trying to make available to people who have anything but perfect bodies, perfect circumstances, you know, in an ideal work environment and family environment, trying to have them realize that sometimes doing 65% of what you know what to do, which you could do 100% of, but this 65% is the crucial one, mm. will bring you much more long-term results and help you a lot, a lot more down the line. And I see so many pros that really have the talent, but every year they try and reinvent the wheel versus pros that are so solid, have such a simple approach, but their, their, their shtick is, is for them to stay consistent and stick to their plan. And they ultimately are the ones that end up being successful. Mm. And I... I think the 80-20 rule really applies to sport and to training because if you know the essentials of what you need to do to get to where you want to go, that means just you can cut out a lot of the crap, which it, it might give you half of, half a percent improvement, but it might take up an extra three hours a week. Whereas if you can focus on just that 20% of the actual work, which is going to get you the 80% of the result, you can be much more efficient with your time, especially for... Uh, amateur athletes so people who aren't full-time if they might have kids they might have a job you just need to get that 20 percent done and you'll be much further ahead of the rest of the field oh it's astounding you know it's funny we've never spoken about this you know you know off recording but but uh, i think it's called Perieto's principle i think it's a 15th or 16th century italian that figured this out but you're absolutely right. This is the, that 20% of the work that you could be doing. You know, it, it's so ironic. You know, in triathlon, for example, somebody will go and, and break the bank to get a bike, you know, that, that's, that's a couple of, you know, um, grams lighter than, than the one they've got. 
but you know just just four weeks of a different nutrition plan and they lose a half a kilo of weight and that's so much more valuable to their to their bike riding you know so it's, it's an interesting you, you you're very right we we like to spend time on things that are sexy and spend instead of spending our time on the things that are absolutely essential yeah absolutely and that's uh, that's one of my attractions to swimming and to running is that it's just it doesn't come down to um spending 10 grand on a bike you know you might get a 200 dollar pair of running shoes which um which might be good but a lot of it just comes down to refining your technique and your training so that all of the stuff that you know might cost a lot of money it doesn't uh it doesn't come down to that and running is such a, a primal sport that um that you've sort of spoken about in your run transformation course that it's uh, it's just such a, a natural thing and and this swimming isn't the same in that it's not a primal movement but there's something about uh something about just your connection with the water and the feeling of the water flowing past you and just you almost it's it seems kind of a spiritual it's a little bit airy fairy but just that feeling of cruising through the water and just having that connection with it it's it's one of the reasons why i love swimming and i love running for for that fact Oh, you know, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, you speak about running being primal, and one of my jobs is to get people that haven't been lifetime runners to a point where they realize it's not a question of me teaching them how to run. It's a question of me getting rid of everything about what they are doing so that only the running that they should be capable of is left behind. And in many ways, although swimming is a is a... Uh, a second language for for human beings in other words it's something that they that they acquire after they learn how to walk and after they learn how to run it is still primal in the sense that you know somebody that's you know 32 33 years old and has never swum at all in their lives uh, and they watch somebody swimming who's proficient and who has great feel for the water they 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 cannot even make that brain connection and the good coaches get to a point where they can simplify like yourself they can swim simplify the swim stroke that when people become detached from an outcome or from a speed in the water and from a lap time and from a heart rate there will be moments and these moments will increase if they if they dwell upon that and you said it sounds airy fairy but you know what even at the highest level that's what it is you know you're teaching people how to be so comfortable in their environment that their effort is only a percentage of what they could have put out maximally. Yeah, that's that's completely true. And if you head down to the pool and there might be a, an elite squad training there, it's just you know I could I could watch them for hours just swimming up and down. And the same goes for when you say it's a beautiful day outside, the water's crystal clear, it's calm. You jump in the water and you just forget everything else. It's just you and the water and just trying to make every stroke as good as it can be. And the same goes for running. When you're in the zone and, you know, you're just gliding effortlessly along the road, it's, um, you know, there's there's something that's really special about that. And I think that people who who might not be fortunate enough to... Um, to, to be able to, to do that on a on a regular basis or they're working up towards it you know it's it's something that I, I think all people should really experience totally and and you know so a large part of what I teach is that volume will make fitness but frequency makes skill and in our modern paradigm it's very difficult for people to go and run for 12 13 times a week even though their volume is the same if they're only running four or five times a week and with the pool it's even more difficult if you don't live with a great tidal pool and you don't live on the gold coast or you don't live on the <laughs> sunshine coast or something where you walk out the door for five minutes and you've got a tidal pool that's swimmable all year round but for people to realize if you want to be a good swimmer, you've got to spend a lot of time in the water, and you can't be spending a lot of time in the water fatiguing. You know, you've got to have success after success after success, and that means I've got to swim very often, and I've got to swim 100% correctly until I take ownership of that. And you know that the most successful sports program in the world in terms of the amount of people they have in it and the amount of champions they produce is the Russian female tennis program. 
And this is just a, a simple program run by an older gal, and all she does all day is micro-correct strokes. She just has these 12 and these 8 and these 9-year-olds just hitting perfect slow-motion shots, and then when she's got them perfect, she has them picking it up and picking it up. And that's the same thing. You know, people want to get their heart rates up. They want to they want to look at their stopwatches. They want to they want to go after an outcome. And you know, running, swimming, cycling, it's the same thing. Is is you have to wait for it to show up. You can't force it to show up. Yeah, it's com- it's completely true. And if, to improve technique, a really good way to do it is to is to do it, get it filmed look over it with the coach and get feedback and then make a correction and just keep doing that until you refine it, refine it, refine it until you get it as, as good as you can. And a good example of this is with one of my swimmers who he broke the, uh, the 50 breaststroke world record a couple of weeks ago for his age group in masters. And every session we've been working on his dive and his breakout and just making small corrections to his, his entry in terms of his angle, what his feet are doing when he enters, uh, his, his pull through in the water and just making sure he's at the right depth and just making changes to all those little things to the point where after doing that for a couple of weeks, he's now able to do it without thinking and where you know, in his race he, he's just able to sort of switch off that conscious, conscious brain and just allow himself to race and he just concentrates on his speed and the technique comes comes naturally and you know making those small refinements it might only take off 0.3 or 0.4 of a second but you know that's what it takes to get down to the world record time for him and the same goes even if you're not at that kind of level getting that kind of feedback and and making those small refinements can give you a much a much bigger improvement than if you're just trying to push harder in training and just trying to drop off half a second in your you know, in your set you know, it, it, it is so very true. You know, I remember when I worked, I used to, um, I, you know, I still get quite a lot of them, but in the past, I used to get a lot more of them when we used to believe that we could take these pure swimmers and teach them to run well enough so that they could be, you know, uh, world champion triathletes. Um, and I remember them saying to me, you know, I've spent three months working on this stuff and I'm able to run in a 10K. I get to about 3K and then I fall apart. And then as the season goes on, they say I'm getting to 5K and then my form fall apart, falls apart and then getting to 7K. And eventually, like I nailed one, I held it together the whole way. And, you know, when it, when it comes to that part of teaching, the research backs us up as well. We know in, in triathlon, when you get off the bike, and you start to run, most people have uh, lost quite a lot of their neuromuscular capacity to run effectively. But the more you are trained and the more you've done your drills and the more disciplined you've been on working on your run form, the quicker your run returns to you and the more dramatically it returns to you and you're able to run faster towards the end. And so absolutely working on those little micro adjustments where initially you will be more you will less economical. You'll use more, you know, more oxygen to run at the same pace. But then, when it starts to click, then ultimately you end up using less oxygen than when you started off with, and feeling a lot more comfortable, and you know, getting less injured, and and in the end, your overall pace is so much better. So, when it comes to swimmers who you transition into into runners, and you try and get them to look like runners, what are some of these common flaws that swimmers have when they move into running? Well, I think one needs to take an overall look at, uh, you know, what happens to uh, athletes when they come from a different background and then they start, uh, they start running. They, they, they need to realize that there's been an intervention from the swimming. You know, the swimming has provided them with an incredible ability to suffuse oxygen into their body. They, they have a wonderful engine. They have a wonderful heart. They have great lungs. They have incredible oxygen delivery capabilities. But there's other things that are very, very challenging for them, and, and part of those things are movement patterns. But before you even get to movement patterns, swimmers have that wonderful discipline, you know, where they get into an environment that is, for most people, is alien. And very often for those that grew up swimming, it was in, it involved a lot of getting up early in the morning and being incredibly disciplined so that you could get pool time. So a, a lot of great swimmers will tell you of getting up in the dark and going to swim and, you know, coming outside and then there's sunlight. 
And that sometimes is, is counterproductive for them in running because as soon as you have a decent swim stroke, you can just pile on the work and you just get better and better. But you're running, you're just so much more fragile. And so swimmers tend to have that lower bone density because they spend a lot of time in a, in a low gravity environment. They don't encourage their, their leg bones and their foot bones and their, and their, and their pelvises and their hips to lay down very dense, um, um, uh, calcium so that they don't have very dense bone structures. They, they want to be lighter and the environment doesn't allow that to happen. So if you look at the skeletons of lifetime runners that have passed away, you will notice that the surface is incredibly dense and is crisscrossed with these micro stress fractures. In other words, they have these very, very springy dense bone structures that can handle that level of pounding. And so when a swimmer starts to run, they really need to take time to do a lot of hiking and to very, very gradually build up with a skipping rope in the gym, lifting some weights, doing little hops and bounds and gradually building up to these, uh, these intensities so that their bone density can increase and so that they can manage that. Um, they also tend to have bigger upper bodies and they tend to think with their upper bodies more than runners do. So in other words, they're carrying more mass generally and they have, you know, generally run, runners are drawn from the lighter part of the community, whereas swimmers, their weight is not that relevant. You know, they just need good angles, they need a big wingspan and they need to be, you know, strong but with, a, with an endurance capacity. So the swimmer must learn how to deal with that. And very often you'll get weightlifters and swimmers that come to the sport that have that body type that is larger. They have the big chest muscles, the big lats. And, you know, the bigger upper bodies, the deltoids and so on. And as they start to run, even though they remain proficient swimmers, their upper body mass starts to decrease because Mother Nature is just telling them this is hurting your VO2 max. This is hurting your aerobic capacity outside in a weight-bearing sport. And so they start losing that musculature. And what you want to do is try and control that so that they don't go too hard and break down. Um, another thing that, that, that is so important is the realization that how we move in running is extremely different in terms of muscle function than how we move when we swim. When we swim, our muscles get shorter. Our, bi our bicep muscle contracts. It pulls into itself. Our chest muscle, our pec muscle pulls into itself. Our lat muscle, the one down the back on the side of our armpit, that pulls down. So those muscles are all shortening. But when we run, as we hit the ground, our quad muscles lengthen, our calf muscles lengthen. And then there's a little bit of contraction after that. But it's, a, it's an eccentric motion that is much more demanding of the body. And then the next thing is, is, is that runners, when they, uh, swimmers, when they put their arm in the water, when they're swimming freestyle, their, their right arm goes in the water and then their right hip drops and they, and they sort of roll onto their side partially, you know, if, if they are good swimmers. Whereas with running, it's completely the opposite way around. When your right elbow goes forward, your left knee goes forward. So that's called a contralateral motion. And so if you do a lot of swimming, you tend to not be able to move contralaterally. You want to move your right hip and your right shoulder. And so the swimmers tend to lock down their upper body and it creates the upper body to disconnect. And then they tend to run with their elbows a bit more extended with these longer arms and they look ungainly. They have kind of a, a flailing way of running until they do the contralateral drills and they learn to move the lower left side together with the upper right side as opposed to swimming where the upper and the, and the lower on the same side move together. Yeah, so you bring that all together and they have these giant engines, you know, so it's like a V8 engine on a toilet door, you know, so they, they have the ability to completely destroy their musculature and their bone structure because they have these great engines, you know. Yeah, and there's always, or when I was growing up, there's always the joke that swimmers can't run. They can, they can last forever, but in terms of their technique and their, I guess their running muscles haven't developed to the stage where they can, uh, where they'll be feeling good towards the end of a race. You've got these swimmers who are incredibly fit. They're training eight, nine times a week, especially some of these younger kids. But they might come to a cross country at school and they just don't even bother because they haven't, uh, they haven't learned to run. But I, th I think there's a big change uh, that's sort of happened in the last couple of years, particularly with younger athletes who are doing more strength work in the gym 
and more exercises outside of the pool on the basketball court, learning to run and um, and move their bodies outside of the water, which is hopefully helping them um, learning to run. But uh, I think it's really interesting. Yeah, the actual movement themselves are, are quite different. Now, do you find that there's any similarities between the two sports? Oh, you know, obviously we're using the same cardiovascular system. <clears throat> and I think if athletes are swimming you know, freestyle and backstroke, those two activities are, are extremely complementary uh, to each other. And I think that that swimming is also from a uh, rehabil- rehabilitative concept where the muscle is floated around the bone and, and swimmers are, are more languid and they're more, you know, they, they have more supple musculature. I think that that definitely uh, benefits, uh, benefits swimmers very much so. And then also swimmers who learn to run with, with lower body fat, I mean, uh, swimmers who learn to improve their swim stroke because as their, their subcutaneous fat layer decreases because they are runners, actually become more proficient swimmers because they can get away with it a little bit when they're pure swimmers with, with a bit of strength. But they don't have that, uh, you know, that advantage when they run. So I think a lot of triathletes ultimately become better swimmers because they have less time. They really have to focus on that, and they have a few less advantages. They can't quite swim as often. They can't quite swim as, uh, as hard. You know, so I, I think that that helps. And I also find that very proficient swimmers learn from running that they can suffer way more than they were suffering in the pool. And they, they learn to raise their game in the water. They're saying, wow, I thought that was hard until I, until I did, you know, 800 meter repeats. And that was really hard. So next time in their water, they've reset their ability to push themselves much, much harder in the water because they've seen a new window, you know? Yeah, I really like that. And, yeah, there's something about running where where you get to the point where you feel like you're about to break. Say if you've done a, a 5K race and you're getting towards the end and everything is just really hurting, you, you might get the same feeling from a 400 or a 1500 freestyle. But it is a bit different because you are on land and your muscles are just saying, oh, I just want to stop and just stop moving. Whereas in the pool, you might become very heavy, but you can still you can still keep going um, and not have your muscles feel like they're about to give out on you. You might just get that piano feeling, whereas, whereas running, it feels like uh, your muscles can't support you anymore. And I, I think that's... Um, that's something that you can sort of learn from running. And I find the other thing that's common among the two sort of techniques is in swimming, you want to make sure that you are straight through your body and you're not bending at your hips or at your waist. And the same thing goes for running is you want to make sure you are running straight and not sort of almost as if you're sitting down slightly. And and activating your core and being straight through your body allows you to relax through your arms and through your legs. And the same thing goes for, for swimming is you want to have that core activated so that you can stay relaxed in your recovery, apply mm. pressure when you're pulling through, and, and, and run or swim and still be relaxed but going fast at the same time. I agree. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not usually skilled on, on the swim coaching side, but I learned a lot from a gentleman who was a former world record holder for the 100 meters by the name of John T. Skinner, uh, South African guy who works at a very high level with, with U.S. swimming at the moment. And he showed me this interesting exercise where he had you get into the uh, streamlined position standing on land, and then he'd push against your hand. And if you were peripherally engaged, you would easily be pushed over if you were trying to resist him with your arm and your pick. But as soon as you engaged your core and you started resisting him from the opposite hip, then you were able to do that. And that carried over so much for me in the pool. And I see runners who do that when they realize when they enter in the water, that they realize that that whole arm, that forearm and that hand is anchored way down on the opposite hip. Mm. And if they feel that sensation of getting, as you guys call it in, in Australia, getting over the barrel, uh, you know, it just makes for so much more of a, of a powerful stroke. And so that whole concept of being connected when you run, being connected when you swim is, is absolutely, uh, you know, a gift from one sport to the other. Yeah, completely. And you look at, you look at a swimmer in the water who, let's say they're, 
their fastest 100 metre time is a minute. And compare that to someone whose fastest 100 metre time might be a 130. Probably the main difference that you'll see is that connection through the core and through the hips and being able to use, to anchor themselves with their hand out the front and then being able to drive that opposite hip forward and through the water. And that control of the hips and the core and the stability that an elite swimmer has got there is, is one of the main differences that I see between uh, the top end of the field and, and sort of the middle end of the field. Exactly. So often you'll get somebody who's not a skilled movement specialist uh, and they will look at a swim stroke and you not, not notice anything wrong, uh, whereas somebody who's skilled at moving themselves will see something wrong with a swim stroke or with a running gait. They might not know where it is. So, you know, if I look at that concept that you're talking about, look, a runner puts his foot down on a unforgiving surface and he anchors on that surface and how his body is relative to how he anchors is very much makes up whether he's a good runner or not. Whereas in swimming, I had a much harder time envisioning that a better swimmer puts his hand in and then moves his body past his hand as opposed to pulling his hand past his body. Yeah, and that's it's a funny concept to to get around, especially uh, if you haven't spent years in the water. And you know, it's the water; it just feels like you're slipping through it no matter what. But with that, as you talk about consistency of training, getting a better a feel of the water, it's um, you know, it's it's something that when you look at a swimmer in slow motion, you can see them them anchor themselves almost move right past their hand so the hand's not moving at all now it's not going to happen exactly like it the hand will move back a bit but yes, yes. yeah but um you know it's not going to move back that much and that's uh you know you can really notice a, a good looking stroke is is when they're moving right past that hand with their body and it, it's not just because they've got a good feel of the water with that hand it it comes down to activating that core and driving that hip and it's everything coming together Exactly. So a lot of people that work with, uh, with the holographic approach to, to sport, whether that's golf or whether that's swimming or whether that's running, they work on that concept where we can't really uh, do much while the movement is going on, especially with a closed loop movement like a swim or a run where, you know, once you start it off, it pretty much is going to go on its own. And if you've got the range of motion and if you've got the strength and you've got the fitness and you've got the muscle endurance, it will go as well as it can possibly go. But what we as mechanical coaches can do is we can, we can establish those set points. So I know in running, we're always looking for where does the running gait start? It's a cyclic thing, but at some point in time, you have to establish it. You know, and it's the same thing as swimming. Is it when the water, when the fingers first hit the water? You know, in running, that's what we work on is, is, you know, as the foot just contacts the ground, what happens from that point until that same foot contacts the ground? And if people can start realizing that they, they have a level of fitness, they have a level of strength, they have a level of muscle endurance, if they can spend a lot of time getting themselves into the right position at the right time, everything flows from there. Yeah, it's completely true. And with this new effortless effortless freestyle DVD that I'm about to release, the first things that that I look at are, is usually body position, head position, and posture in the water. Because if that's wrong, it's there's no point changing what your pool's doing, no point changing what uh, your kick's doing. It's all about getting that posture and position right first, and then everything else starts to fall into place. I, I, I love the name of your course. I love, I love that whole concept of effortless freestyle because that, that is really in alignment with what we all do is, is you know, a really go, good coach knows that they have nothing to offer and that their sole purpose of their job is to uncover what the athlete already has. So if you add range of motion, you add fitness, you add technique, you add habituation, then it becomes effortless. You know, then, yeah. then acceleration is what requires effort, but it doesn't require effort to swim correctly if you train correctly. It doesn't require effort to remain in a certain posture when you run. It only requires effort to pick up the pace when you start challenging your central systems. And I think that's what we all strive for. And so often the athletes that we work with are not on the same page as us. You know, they either hero worship us too much and think that we have some magic 
something that we're going to give them that they don't already have, you know, or on the flip side of that, they just think, you know what, this is just going to take hard work. Mm. And hard work with the communities that we work with mostly, which are people that are, you know, coming to the sport a little bit later, often leads to injury because they haven't had the advantage of running or swimming since they were six or seven or eight years old. So they actually have to pay attention because if they learn the hard way, they'll never get anywhere close to where they could be. They actually have to learn the clever way, which is try to make as little of the mistakes as possible on the way up the ladder. Mm. And the, my effortless swimming tagline is swimming fast is easy. And that's not to say that if you want to swim fast, look, that's easy. Just go and do it. It's a bit of a play on words. It's that swimming fast is done while you're relaxed, you're feeling comfortable. It's not about grinding it out and just pushing as hard as you can because it's about mastery of the, the movement. It doesn't matter if it's in sport, whether it's in uh, public speaking or anything like that. It's all about mastering the, uh, the principles and the fundamentals behind it, and then it, it becomes easy, and it looks like you're not even trying. From an outsider's perspective, if you look at the 200 freestyle in the Olympics or you know, even the, the running, you're 100 metres running, 200 metres running, it doesn't look like they're trying, but it's because they've they've mastered that movement for years and years and years, and it looks like it's coming very comfortably to them. While they are putting in the effort inside, the actual movement looks very comfortable. Exactly. You know, they're, they're, all the great sprinters, the running sprinters in the world will speak about that. Is, is If you try and run at 100% of your capacity, you're going to fall apart. It's a very controlled uh, sub-maximal effort for the duration of that sport. So, you know, uh, you know, a, a great 1,500-meter swimmer or a great 800-meter swimmer or, or a great 10K runner will tell you the same thing is, is that, you know, they can go faster for shorter distances. You know, that's why with the Ironman this weekend, I, I, I just felt so sorry for a large amount of the pros because when you look at a Marinda Carfrey running and you go, okay, there's a lot of those girls in that field a lot of them that are contending that wouldn't be able to keep up with Marinda for 10K. And she's running 42.2K. They're just not mechanically capable of keeping up with her. So they could have the engine to do so, but unless they learn how to run that way, they, they stuck, you know? And, and it's so important to realize that the people that perform so well at these great speeds are actually swimming at some percentage of their maximum effort and that the faster people can get over the shorter distances the more comfortable they feel at these longer distances that they're trying to compete over mm. uh, because you attended you attended Kona in the lead up, up uh, lead up up to the event and you so you watched the the event online what did you see among the top say four or five contenders in the male and the females what did you see in their run that was uh, common among all of them that led them to have such a, a good run mechanically yeah they they natural movers they athletic movers you know they they are not robotic uh they're not perfect runners by any means uh, but it is clear that they are relaxed at that pace. And if they're fueling and they, they're doing whatever they need to do to stay cool and, and get in up to a, you know, half of the calories that they need, uh, you know, that they are putting out at that point in time, that they can continue like that for a long time. But you can see a lot of them that come out and they, they're doing really well in the beginning out of transition. Um, that they are, that they will not be able to sustain that just because of the level of, of, of mechanical discomfort that they're showing. And, you know, those, uh, very often it's the, it's those individuals that, that are very proficient swimmers and then have trained themselves to be incredibly strong and fit on the bikes, but they haven't had the ability or the time to go and teach themselves, uh, to be those natural runners. Now, the beauty of a race like, like that Ironman is, is, you know, is that very few people are running much faster than four minutes a K, you know. So uh, it's, it's definitely a cardiovascularly doable pace. 
But if you are, the, the more efficient you are, the less moving parts you have that are moving outside of this linear pattern that you're trying to do, the greater the chances are that you'll be able to keep that going, you know, for eight to nine hours, which is what the, those top ones are doing. Is that you can just see where the rubber meets the road from the time their foot hits the ground until the time it leaves the ground. It's in the right place le- relative to their center of mass. It's the shortest possible lever possible coming back. And there's no extraneous left or right motion. So they're not dropping down on the hip on the opposite side or any of that. And so those girls that run so well but don't have that massive extension that, that Marinda Carfrey has, they make up for that with these amazing stride rates of 100, 104 steps a minute. So they've got these short strides, but they're really moving along and they're well trained in that. And then that, you know, that kind of movement is also very smooth for them. So they're competitive. Mm. And I, looking at the the men's winner, the the Belgian Frederick van van Leder, I think it's yep, yep. he um he had a very consistent race, top ten in the in the swim, in the bike, and in the run, and just be and I think it it really comes down to just having that uh, that technique there and being able to gauge where your effort levels at, and just being able to keep it at that point where you're not going over. To where you're going to break down from there so he was just able to make, remain consistent throughout the entire race and he just chipped away chipped away and didn't move over to the point where he's going to break down with his form and his mechanics and uh and i think in a long race like that that's incredibly important but uh, in the pool uh it might if you say if you're doing a 200 freestyle you can get to the point where you're starting to break down with maybe 15 meters to go but any more than that and you're probably just going to die too much in that last 50 so it it doesn't matter what the race is you've really just got to know how hard you can push yourself to the point before you're going to uh, lose that technique and have that drop away exactly and it's you know both from a psychological standpoint and from a physiological standpoint the, the research is phenomenal you know how the central governor theory put forward by Tim Noakes is, is is starting to postulate quite effectively that when when our brain senses that the type of motion that we are executing at that point in time is not matching up with the amount of time that we still want to produce that level of effort at, the brain will start removing capacity to be able to do that. It'll it'll make us weaker. It'll take away muscle power. And from a physiological standpoint, that that also makes sense, is is that if you, through sheer willpower in the early stages of the race, coming off the bike, for example, start pushing yourself beyond what your physiological capabilities are early on, then, then, you know, when you finally run out of gas, you're going to run out of gas very, very badly. And so there's so much research now on pacing. And, and, you know, you still look at the top 10 women and the top 10 men in Ironman, you still see them running 20, 30 seconds a mile too fast out of transition, you know, which is costing them four and five minutes at the end of the day, just because they don't have a handle on that ability to say, I, I can't possibly run that slowly. I feel too good, you know, mm. and that that shows up all the time that that interplay. If you look at ultra marathon races, you never get 20-something setting records because they just, especially in the men, they just don't have the capacity to run that slowly that early on. It just They can't conceive of them having to re- need to run that slowly. They can conceive of themselves walking for miles and miles and miles at the end of the race, but they don't realize that for every five or ten seconds, okay, they're running too fast, <laughs> you know, in, in, in the first part of the race they're costing themselves upwards of a minute per k towards the end mm. and i see that even in 100 freestyle events some you know if someone's asking how do i get faster in my 100 freestyle my you know asking questions of what their training's like uh what type of work they're doing in training but also how you're pacing that 100 because if you're going out as fast as you can for that first 50 it's, it might only take you 25 30 seconds but that's enough to uh, to tire out and so you don't have that second 50 you don't have the energy to bring it home that second 50 so you do you can't just go out 100 percent the first 50 you might need to bring it back to 95 percent. so you come off that turn and you can build it up that last 50 so at the very end you're absolutely absolutely spent but if you're going um pedal to the metal off the start 
there's a good chance that you'll have nothing left towards the end. And that's, uh, and that's one of the things that I see missed a lot is just pacing for races. And it's such an important part of it, but I think it's overlooked all too often. Oh, the great Kiwi uh, marathon runner, um, Lorraine Moller, who won the bronze medal in the Barcelona Olympics in the marathon. Her coach used to say to her, go out at what you think is the right pace and then back off. <laughs> and so with this business that they've just, remember they were trying to put together Usain Bolt racing against Mo Farah over 600 meters. I haven't, and, seen, I haven't seen that, but... Yeah, well, they're trying to get them to do that. They try to get them to do that at the end of last season. <laughs> and it would have been a really interesting race because, you know, they postulate that Mo wouldn't have to train for that race specifically because his training is specific enough for that. But but uh, Usain would have to train specifically for that, a little bit more like a 400-meter athlete. And his biggest problem would be pacing himself in the first 200 meters, mm. whereas Mo would be able to run pr pretty close to his maximum effort the first 200 meters, you know, much closer than, than, than uh, Usain Bolt would have to swim. So in the same vein, I've often thought if you took the best 50-meter swimmers in the world and the best 100-meter swimmers in the world, which aren't the same guys, and you drew a line across the pool halfway back at 75 meters, it would be a real interesting thing to see, yeah. you know, who got there first, because it would be a different kind of animal. Sometimes it would be the 100 guys, sometimes it would be the 50 guys, but it just points to that, that there's this huge difference between a 50 and a 100, even in swimming, which is, you know, a 50 is 25 seconds and a 100 is 60 seconds, for example, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's that's funny. You know, one of the guys I coach, uh, British guy, we we always have this joke that yeah, he's a great fifty swimmer, and it comes to a hundred, and he just doesn't have that second fifty. So there's this kind of ongoing, recurring joke about him not not being able to um, to finish off a hundred, and it's just because they are they are completely different races. You can have guys who, let's say James Magnuson, who's the the hundred freestyle uh, world champion at the moment. I'm, I'm not sure if he won the 50 or not, but he, you know, he trains for the 100, and if he wins the 50 or he does well in the 50, that's just because he's done the training for the 100. Yeah. He hasn't focused on the 50, but uh, you're right, they're completely different races because you're starting to use different energy systems in the 100, and it's, uh, I think, being specific with your training and, and just picking that, that race or that distance or that event that, you, that really matters to you, and... If you do race in something else, whether that's um, something twice as long or half as long, whatever result you get, that's just you know, cream on top. But be you've got to be specific with the events that you're targeting. Absolutely. It's a fascinating conversation because, you know, we always say to people, if, if you're a 400-meter runner and you have the athleticism, the power, and the speed to get to the finishing line in, you know, around about 44 seconds, it is pretty much an extended sprint, but if it's going to take you 45 seconds or longer, which is, you know, almost everybody other than the top five 400-meter runners in the world, it's a tactical race. You have to view it as a tactical race. But how many athletes get down on that start line to, to sprint to 400 meters, and they just have not got the the ability to hold themselves back and they shoot themselves in the foot and then they look like so much wet washing trying to run that last 75. <laughs> yeah, and it's not much fun running that last 100 metres either because it's, it's, it's much more fun when you've got the energy to bring it home faster. That last 100 look like a bit of a hero and, yep. uh, you know, and, and feel good while you're doing it. So, yeah, be, being smart about your, uh, your pacing and your tactics um, is much more enjoyable. Every single world record, including this world record that they just set for the marathon in Berlin, has, you know, since the year 2000, has been set by having really good rabbits and really good pacing, all the way from 1500 up to the marathon. And, you know, we just have to r realize that it's just going to be a an exercise in discipline for us to get our everyday athletes to realize that the path to success is you cannot be an investment banker. You cannot put time in the bank in endurance events. It does not work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really good analogy. I've never heard that one before, but um, I'm going to have to use it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're welcome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Bobby. <laughs> um, just what, one last point on running is for swimmers. So if, if you're a swimmer and you don't necessarily do any running just because you're primarily a swimmer, even if you can do a little bit of cross-training 
with running, it can make a big difference. I had a, a friend who made the Australian team in 2011, and uh, and I think that was the year that the Americans just just dominated us in the pool at, at the World Championships. And uh, my friend who was over there on the team, he said that the Americans were doing quite a bit of running as part of their training. So they were they were leaner, they were fitter, and for whatever reason, the the running just seemed to make the entire team that little bit more fitter than than the rest of the Australian team. Now, it's obviously not the, the, the whole reason that the Americans smashed us at that meet, but it does play a bit of a part of it, and you've got to look at what are some of the things that they're doing to, you know, to do that. Um, so I think that as a swimmer, being able to do a little bit of running as cross-training will make you leaner and you know, will develop your, your muscles and your physiology in a way that's going to help you swimming. I, I agree with that. There's a couple of little things, especially for swimmers that have never run before, is, is for them to realize that, you know, running on very uneven surfaces, very gnarly surfaces with lots of up and down, running on the dirt, running on the grass, running in a situation where you actually have to pay attention to your footfall. And, you know, I've, I've worked with so many people that have been great breaststrokers and they hate trail running because they've got great motors, but they've got no balance, and they hate running on uneven surfaces. They run great on, as, on, on a tar road, on asphalt. And so, firstly, just teaching them to do that. And then the flip side of that, you know, when I was in Beijing, I actually got to meet all the top U.S. swimmers, you know. I got to meet Natalie Coughlin and, and Michael Phelps and, and those guys. And I was sitting around talking to them, and I remember Natalie saying to me, probably for about four months of the year she doesn't touch the water it's all athletic moves that she does and you know i know she's a faster swimmer so she's in this faster event but she was telling me they do so much dry land work that is you know sprinting and stairs and bounding and and you know dry land work of that nature so just generally making them more athletic allows the swimmer in them to come to the fore even more yep completely and even in my own swimming, I've just started doing, I've just started getting back into to gym and not just gym where it's lifting heavy weights, it's not really my thing, but the athletic movements of, um, you know, yeah, running the hops, um, using the uh, the battle ropes and all that sort of stuff. It's, you, once you get to the pool, you're standing behind the blocks uh, and you've done that sort of training, you, there's a feeling that comes with it that's, that where you you feel like you are you've got more power you've got more control of yourself in the water so there's a huge benefit to doing exercises outside of the water and um you know about a, a year or two ago I was I was just doing uh swimming like I was doing maybe 7 8 sessions a week um, yep. but I just didn't have the the power um to to go that fast i had the the engine but the the power in the water was much less than even three or four weeks of gym work i know it's amazing how that works you know i i've got a a lot of respect for wayne goldsmith the performance specialist uh, the australian performance specialist his stuff is amazing and you know that whole concept that we we have to practice under pressure that's way beyond what we can expect in races because it, it makes it possible for, for those kind of things to happen. And, and, and just thinking it within the very uniform environment of the pool, how hard it is to create swimming sessions that are going to be a little bit beyond what that athlete is going to expect in a swimming race. It is so much better to take him out of the pool, put him in an environment that he's not as used to and challenge him there you know, and then when he, he or she gets back in the water, they're just so much more well-rounded swimmer because they, you know, they haven't been just confined to that environment under pressure. Yeah, that's that's a good point because let's say you've got a set; it might be twelve one hundreds on say one thirty, and you do that for a couple of weeks in a row. You your body gets used to that set or that movement, so you need to look at doing something slightly different to maybe change the muscles that you're using or, or change the way you're doing that set in order to, to continue to grow and get better um, at your chosen sport. So, yeah, you're just, just looking outside of what you're currently doing to, to, to change your you know, different muscles or the way you're doing your set, it can make a, a big difference to the improvement that you're getting from what you're actually doing. And I think that's exactly why we do drills. 
We do drills because they isolate areas and they take us beyond the ranges of motion, beyond the power requirements, beyond the fitness requirements of just doing the event that we're so used to. You know, humans are like cockroaches. They're phenomenally adaptable. And so I know in, in miling, for example, if you can do 10 by 400 with a minute recovery in under 60 seconds, you are physiologically capable of running a sub four minute mile. But I know a bunch of guys that can run 59s for 10 400s, but they can't break a sub four minute mile. And the reason is, is because they're not doing 500s and 600s and 300s and 200s commensurate with that. They just become specialists at 10 by 400. Mm. So you're absolutely right. You've got to keep changing the stimulus. Even though you're stimulating the same physiological body, you've got to change the perceptual motor stimulus. You've got to change the neuromuscular stimulus so that that adaptability is there because they get up on the blocks. They've done those key sessions. I remember those years before they broke 15 minutes for 1,500 meters. I watched those sessions developing, you know. In those days, you'd watch it in the news and stuff. And those guys were doing those, you know, 15 by 100 meters uh, on 60 seconds. And the guys were, you know, getting three and four seconds recovery. <laughs> and it's that. It's, it's in, in inventing that continual change of stimulus so that when the internal dialogue changes, when they get up on the blocks, they are able to deal with how it's changed their thinking and then quickly get back into where they need to be to be able to achieve that matches up with their physical capability. Mm, yeah, completely. We On our Thursday night sessions, we um, – oh, well, Wednesday nights are normally our speed sessions, and like a, hard, a hard set can be 1050s all out on three minutes. So you're getting a lot of rest, but you're just going as yeah. fast as you can for those 1050s. And on Thursday nights, we started to do a little bit of uh, gym work within our set. So it might be 20 push-ups, and then we'll jump on the blocks and sprint to 25. And it's different to what the athletes are used to. So the next day, they're pulling up really sore because their muscles aren't those muscles aren't used to being used. But they could go the 1050s uh all out and you know feel okay the next day so it's yeah changing that that stimuli and changing changing the muscles that are getting used yeah it's it's a fascinating field and i think we're just scratching the surface in terms of doing those kind of things i remember after the world track championships that they just had in moscow uh this uh shelly ann fraser price the, the jamaican girl that won the 100 and the 200 and i think she won the 100 at the olympics as well in london I watched a session of hers on YouTube, and, you know, she's a girl that the longest time she spends out there is 23 seconds. And I was watching her doing 15 minutes of plyometric power-type work, which was clearly endurance-based. And I was going, you know what? She and her coach know things that, you know, that endurance athletes know, and she's applying that to sprinting. You know, so the, the same kind of thing is, is you, you put – you put your distance swimmers in sprinting environments, even though they, they are pulling at it, they gain so much more from that than they would gain from a rote workout that they would normally do in, in endurance. I was watching a, a DVD with Brant Best and James Magnuson, and Brant Best is James's coach. He was saying that in their, this is at the start of the season, in their training, James did a 1,500-meter time trial along with the rest of the squad as part of his training. Now, he's a 50 and 100 metre swimmer. So, yeah, it's, and that's just to get him to, to experience that, um, the 1500, learn from it, you know, and take whatever he's learned there and apply that to, to his racing. So, you know, you've got the, the best 100 metre in the world uh, doing a, a 1500 metre time trial in training at the start of the season. So, um, that's, yeah, and, and you sometimes come across athletes who, who don't want to change what they're doing or they don't want to um, especially sprinters you know they might be um, might be 50 meter specialists or 100 meter specialists and they don't want to venture out into the the longer stuff but you will learn something from from doing something a bit different oh you know you're seeing this in the running world now there's two truisms now on in track if you were a 100 meter runner five years ago you are not a 100 meter runner you're a 200 meter runner if you were a 200-meter runner five years ago, you're not a 200-meter runner. You're a 400-meter runner now. That's how the game has picked up. And then the other thing is just looking at Mo Farah going, you know, setting the European record and running uh, the fifth, I think, or the sixth fastest time ever for 1,500 meters, and he's the, he's the Olympic 10,000-meter champion. 
you know, so just the versatility of people that are training like that, you know, starting to make us all realize that, well, you know what, if you're a 50 or 100 meter swimmer, you better know how to swim a 400 or an 800. Otherwise, you're going to get your ass handed to you over the shorter distances pretty soon. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, and that's... Um, the- I think that'll uh, that'll sort of wrap up our our chat, Bobby. So thank you so much for joining me again on another podcast. I've you know, I've learned I learned a lot again, and it's always good to chat to you because um, I love to hear your philosophy on on training and, and coaching because it applies one hundred percent to swimming as well. And um, you know, even, even just for athletes who may not be coaches, I think that if you can volunteer your time as a coach, I know my dad gets his athletes to. Uh, to coach a session here and there uh, with him, just to look at uh, look at the other swimmers' techniques and um, you know to look behind the scenes at an actual session. It's you can learn so much uh, as a coach. Have you did you find that when you moved into coaching that that you learnt more about the actual sport than when you were doing it yourself? Oh, completely, completely, because you're an unattached observer. And, you know, in 1986, when I made a huge leap forward in my coaching capabilities, South Africa was still embroiled in apartheid. And so this, I was this young upstart coach. I had no athletes on the international scene. And even if I did, nobody would know because they weren't allowed to compete. And I toured all over Europe and I spoke to coaches like Frank Horwell and Walter Gladrow and, uh, um, uh, you know, Harry Wilson, who coached Steve Ovet. And they were all very open and sharing with me and I could go to their sessions and watch them coaching. And I learned so much there because, you know, I, I, you know, I hadn't any athletes in that same kind of league. So totally, you know, as, as a coach, you have a different eye, a different approach. And I think an athlete that can share with the coach and that can view themselves through the coach's eye as well are athletes that are on, on an accelerated learning curve. And they take an interest, you know, in their, I think that's what's sometimes wrong with junior sport at the moment is the athletes expect the coach to do all the thinking and just press a button, whereas the athlete has to be deeply involved with the process for them to become as good as swimmers or runners that they can be. Mm, yeah, completely. Some of these younger kids, so my dad's a, a swimming coach as well, and he's the athletes he coaches are anywhere from, I might say, seven up to about 18. And he gets some of the younger guys who are sort of 12, 13, 14. They come along and coach with him. And uh, there's, there's one girl who, I think she's 14 at the moment or 15. She, um, she was injured for a period of a couple of uh, months and she would get up every I think Wednesday and Thursday morning and just go and help him coach because she enjoyed it so much and you know when she gets back in the pool she's got this huge base of knowledge that she's learned from teaching the other swimmers how to um, you know how to improve their technique that um, that she herself can become um, can improve her own stroke because she knows what to look for and and that's a sort of part of your run transformation course it's part of my effortless freestyle course is that coming from that coaching perspective um, as an athlete you can you can look at that coaching perspective and you can evaluate your own stroke or your mechanics or your technique and you can identify where you need to improve upon and then you you've got the tools there to be able to do that because you know okay my say kick for example is doing this I might I need to do this drill or I need to change my body position in this way. So being able to self-evaluate and look at your own uh, swimming or running from a, a coach's perspective is how you're going to improve much faster than if you are just waiting for your run coach or your swim coach to tell you what to do. Oh, yeah. You know, with your effortless freestyle or with, with my run transformation course, It's absolutely clear that athletes that find their way to their best performances the hard way, in other words, they know every detail, they've ground the way, they know the science, they know the mechanics, they know how they put themselves together and how their coaches put themselves together, stay at the top a lot longer. And also, if they lose their way, if they go through a bad patch or they get injured, when they come back, they just get back into the game so much quicker because... You know, all of us, yourself, myself, you know, I've got, I've got degrees and qualifications in exercise science. 
which meant nothing at the time, but when I added practical experience to that, then all of that information became available for me. So an athlete who thinks because they're talented and they work hard are going to get there and they don't understand the game and they don't understand the reasons for why they do things are never going to be as successful as they could be. So, you know, it, it doesn't, you know, I, I sound like a shameless self-promoter, but this kind of background that you can get that's available nowadays online is, is you know, worth untold value in terms of people's individual performances if they understand what they're trying to achieve. Yeah, completely true. I mean, look, 20 or oh, 10 years back uh, or 15 years back when the internet wasn't wasn't as prevalent or around and the information wasn't out there as much you you might pick up one or two things from a book and or you might have to go and see someone at their training facilities um, and hopefully pick up some stuff there but the the amount of content and information that's available these days is you can learn to become um, uh, you, know, you can learn to master or become proficient in something with the, the information that's available these days and you know, ten, 10 hours of uh of content in your own transformation course, uh, I'm sure people will pick up more than one or two things um, going through that course. So, you know, if you're if you're a swimmer wanting to get into running a bit more, you're a triathlete, and you wanna you wanna be be able to bring home your triathlon that much quicker and with that much better mechanics and, and form, then um, I highly recommend to to check out Bobby's Run Transformation course and uh, and watch the video on the on the page there as well. I, I, I sat down, and I don't know how long the video goes for. Maybe it's 15 10 minutes, I think, yeah. 10 minutes, is it? And I, I, uh, I played it, and then I just didn't move for that, that 10 minutes that the video was on. It's just an awesome video on the, on the page there. So go and check that out on, on Bobby's website at, at bobbymcgee.com. So, Bobby, thank you again, and uh, I'm sure uh, we'll get you back on the, the podcast if you're, if you're happy to be a guest again. Oh, absolutely, Brenton. It's only a pleasure. Fun to spend uh, an hour with you, and uh, good luck, too, to your swimmers. They are in very, very good hands. Thanks, Bobby, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks again. Uh, Take care, guys. Thanks for joining us on the Effortless Swimming Podcast. To get transcriptions, bonus videos, and to be the first to hear about new episodes, go to swimmingpodcast.com. 